Well, welcome once again, and if you are watching on live stream, we are thankful that you have chosen to join us that way, and if you're in person, we are certainly glad you are here. Uh, if you're on the live stream, we encourage you to come in person. It's, it's friendly, it's different uh, experience than watching on your TV with that sound. It's totally different, um, and, and it's great to be with people of God worshiping together. We have started a new sermon series called Ordering Your Life, and what we are about to read today lies in the crossroads of life between the Spirit-filled life, which we will read in verse 18, and then in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, where, we, where we're told the attacks of the evil one come against us. So you've got the Spirit-filled life, the attacks of the evil one, what lies in the crossroads? Well, one of the things was what we talked about last week, parenthood. And the other? Let's find out. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 through 32. You can follow along with me. The words will be on the screen. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'll bless the reading of your word which is true and as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. Use it to touch our hearts. Help us to be willing to hear it and able to shape our lives by it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a picture. You could put that on the screen for me, this this slide. I saw this some time ago. It was sent to me. I'm glad you laughed. Um, I don't know if it's meant to demean women as, as complicated or men as stupidly simple. I, I don't know. And, and, and I don't want to do either today. I'm not trying to categorize men this way or women that way to demean either uh, of the sexes, of the genders. I mean, God, men and women are created in God's image and each have equal dignity before God, yet we have differences. 
Specifically, I want to talk about that within the context of marriage today, um, and then we will continue to talk some about this, uh, ordering your life in parenthood and marriage, and then ordering life in church as we talk in the future weeks about it as well. But I'm going to give you the outline of what we're talking about today. Um, so what I'm proposing to you is this, uh, you can put that outline on the screen, is that since marriage is the crossroads of life, you will get the most out of it if you're ordering your marriage God's way. And there's three ways we're going to talk about that today. Ordering your marriage by grounding it in creation, by giving yourself to and for your spouse, and by glorifying Christ. So first, grounding, ordering your marriage by grounding it in creation. In verse 31 of what we just read in Ephesians, it says, For this reason the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Now, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you or not, but it it would have to everybody reading, the Jewish people especially reading this, because it goes all the way back to Genesis, to the first book of the Bible. And so I think it's important we understand that, and we're going to read these verses, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and then in chapter 2 a little bit as well. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish, in the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in chapter 2, it goes on and talks again and talks about man being alone. And the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God had caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs, then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That's what he quoted in Ephesians. So what Paul is doing here is grounding it in creation, grounding marriage, the order of marriage in creation. And I just want to make a few observations uh, about that, God's created order for men and women. One is biology. He created them uniquely, male and female, right? And so basic biologies were designed in that way. Part of the reason we're designed that way is for reproduction, to fill the earth and multiply. That's not the only reason, but that's part of it. It also were created male and female, and that in, is, uh, pertains to our psychology, right? Men and women are different, but created in God's image with equal dignity and value. And the two becoming one flesh means there's a deeply psychological and complementary connection that happens in marriage. It, it also affects sociology, right? Marriage forms a new social order, a new family unit, the most basic unit that there is in society in that way. So you leave father and mother and be united to wife, right? That's the leaving and the cleaving, forming a new social unit. It also talks about men and women in terms of economy because both are given responsibility to manage the resources of the earth, to be good stewards of the earth. They're both to be invested in that, men and women. And it talks about it in terms of theology because notice in in Genesis what it said was God said, 
Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. What's striking about that is if we were to read the rest of of Genesis 1 and 2 there, is you would see the phrase recurring more than 10 times that God created animals and living creatures and plants all according to their kinds, 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 but let us make man in our image. There's something unique about mankind that bears the image of God that is different from the rest of creation. And he says, let us make them and make them male and female in our image. It's not just man alone nor woman alone that bears the image of God. It's men and women reflecting together something about the image of God as our creator and our Lord. And that's an important thing for us to recognize that both genders fully reflect the image of God existing in relationship rather than in impersonal isolation. What do I mean by that? God exists eternally as one in three persons. That's what the Bible says. Don't make me try to explain it. It's really confusing. But that's why I think it's true. Nobody made that up sitting around the campfire. So God existed, eternally exists, one God in three persons, Male and female are reflecting this beautiful image of God that exists in different persons that loves and cares. That's why the Bible can say God is love, because it's not a singular. God is uh, three persons. So, ordering marriage means it needs to be grounded in creation, understanding those basic things. We talked about that, actually, not long ago. We did a series in Genesis about a year ago. So, I'd say go back. You can listen to some of that if you want to hear more of that. But let me move on to the second point, which is this. Ordering marriage by giving yourself to and for your spouse. Here we're going to jump more into that Ephesians text that we read earlier. But here's what happens. is Usually, you and I think of... You don't have to put it on the screen yet. Um, you and I usually think of yourself first or ourself first, right? That's the way human nature works. I'm talking about me. I'm looking through my eyes towards you, so I'm interpreting everything through me thinking about me, right? Thinking about myself. That's human nature. When you look out for yourself, you don't want to admit um, that that you need to to care for the other like you care for yourself. You want to care for yourself first. And so you also don't want to submit to or serve the other because you're thinking, I want what I want, what's best for me. I mean, this is, you know, true in marriage. It's true in parenthood. It's true in life. We want to manipulate, control situations, get the most out of it. In other words, we always want to put ourselves first. But what Paul is challenging us to is saying, in marriage you are saying, I'm willing to put the other first. I'm willing to put the spouse first. What does that look like? He tells us in these verses that it looks like wives who are submitting to and respecting their husbands, and it looks like husbands who are loving and sacrificing for their wives. And the example he gives to try to help us understand that is the example of the way Jesus the Christ relates to his people, the church. And he's saying, this is how you are to submit. And that's what the mutual submission looks like, to submit to one another. But the submission is also not identical, because how does it work with Jesus and the church? The church submits to Christ by a disposition to follow his leadership. 
But Christ submits to the church by a dis- discipline to exercise his leadership in humble service and sacrifice. And so Paul is taking it that way and saying, look and consider this. And what does that mean if you are going to order your marriage by God's design, grounding it in creation, giving yourself to and for your spouse? What does that mean for wives? Well, that's what he tells us in verse 22, that wives, you give yourselves in love by submitting in verse 22 and then by respecting in verse 33. Those are really the only two instructions in Ephesians that are given. So you love by submitting like you do to the Lord Jesus. That's hard to hear probably because in our culture the word submit has all kinds of connotations to it. Submitting it does not mean uh, to a point like where you're being abused or mistreated. You might think of like, wives probably wouldn't think of this, but men might like wrestling or, or um, uh, different things like that where there's choke moves and like you're being submitted and like, no, that's not what it means. Um, it has the meaning of to honor and to affirm another. It's not inequality. It's not inability. It's not giving up all your hopes and dreams, wives. But it does mean you consider the hopes and dreams of another and figure out how the two of you work in complementary ways to merge your spouse's hopes and dreams together. You're hitched, right? That's what we call it. Married. You're getting hitched. Okay, now you're hitched together. You don't blindly follow. You don't mindlessly follow. You're a partner in marriage. And you use all of your talents and your gifts that God has given you for God's glory and for your partnership in marriage and for your family. Also, wives, you need to know, Paul makes this very clear, that um, while um, you are to follow like you would the Lord, that your husband is not the Lord. (laughs) He's not Jesus. He's not meant to be your Savior. And he certainly is not sinless. He will screw up a lot. I have a lot. Speaking from experience, do not follow him where he leads into sin. That's not the command Paul's giving. You're following as you would the Lord, right? And that's always, that's never into sin. So don't follow into sin. Don't succumb to mistreatment or abuse. If that's happening, stop that quickly. Get help. Come seek out help. Ask me so that your marriage can be healed. And then you're to love by respecting his leadership. That's verse 33, to respect your husband, right? Here's the thing. You cannot love what you don't respect. Peter says the same thing in reverse to to husbands, to respect their wives. That's why, like, you can't love what you don't respect. If there's a disgust, you're not willing to love. So when you're respecting, you're willing to love. Respecting your husband means you can affirm his leading. And it also means that sometimes you've got to challenge it when he's leading in the wrong direction. What if he isn't deserving of respect? Women, what if you're thinking, you don't know my husband. He doesn't deserve respect. I, I don't. Maybe I don't know your husband. Maybe you've been hurt by words or by actions. But I also think this is true not only for wives but for husbands. Remember, Peter talks about it both ways. 
that we don't respect one another because of the goodness that we possess, but because of the grace that we need. Right? If all we were ever to do were to respect and therefore love because of how good the person was, well, then that would be going up and down all the time because sometimes they're nice and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they do right things, sometimes they don't. But the, the command to respect isn't then filtered through whether it's good or bad. It's saying, no, we're going to respect not because of the goodness that you possess, but because of the grace that you need. In other words, what he's saying is, show him Jesus or show her Jesus. Tim Keller who started Redeemer Church in New York City, um, tells the story of a time early on uh, in his marriage when he and his wife Kathy um, had um, a dispute, an argument. Kathy um, needed to protest his leadership, and she did. He had been working extremely long hours for over three years to get that church started in Manhattan from 1989 to 92 in those years. Each time... She would confront him and say, Tim, you are working too much. It's hurting us. It's hurting the family. You've got to change your ways. You've got to slow down. And he would say, you're right. You're right. I know. I've got, I got to slow down. I've got, got to make adjustments. But he never did because he admitted that he got used to and had adjusted to the long hours and liked the productivity that was happening. One day he came home to their apartment And Kathy was on the balcony with a hammer smashing wedding china. He goes out to the balcony. He's like, what is wrong? What what is wrong? And she looks at him and says, you aren't listening. You don't realize that you keep working these hours like this, that you are destroying this family, you are smashing this family to pieces. And she took the hammer and smashed a third saucer. And he sits down with her on the balcony and and says, okay, I'm listening. And he listens to her. He was worried that she was having a meltdown. He hugs her. She says, oh, I'm not having a meltdown. The cups to those three saucers broke years ago, but I needed to get your attention. (laughs) And he said, it was wonderful because she didn't throw them at me. She wasn't in a rage. She was calm but forceful and clear in what needed to happen. And it was one of the things in which he says... And their relationship was respectful and got his attention the way it needed to be gotten. Submitting, hard to do. Why would we even want to talk about that? The Bible talks about it. Why would a wife want to submit to her husband? What what would he have to be like? Women, men, husbands, wives, most of this text is addressed to husbands. There's like three verses that start to the wives and the rest of it goes to the husbands. Far and away, most of the print is given to them, which is a big clue that Paul thinks the biggest problem is that men don't love their wives very well. Husbands, if your wife does not seem to want to follow your lead, maybe you need to ask questions about how you're loving. 
Husbands, then, Paul says, are to give themselves in love by humbly serving. And what does that look like? Think about, remember, he compares to Jesus in the church. What, what does Jesus' love for the church look like? Is that staying at a distance, issuing dictates and commands, shouting, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that? That's not what Jesus' love looks like, right? He leaves heaven. He comes down to earth, gets close, gets near, comes in humble service, gently sacrificing greatly, right? So we should love the way Jesus loves husbands, right? Husbands, that's what we should do. Love the way he does. You can, you can put verse 25 on the screen now. Notice he loves by sacrificing. Love yourselves. He gave himself up for her. Love is not domineering, it's not insulting, it's not violent, it's self-sacrificing, it's putting giving before getting. In verse 27, we see that, he, that we are to love by affirming beauty. Notice here, it's the language of taking a bride and presenting the bride without, uh, without spot or wrinkle, holy without blemish and splendor, right? Affirming beauty. Telling your wife that she's beautiful. Not comparing her to others. Not looking at porn. If that's your battle, it's many people's battles. Men and women, by the way, both. But get help. We have ways to help you that protect your privacy in that and will help you. But come talk to me or Brian. We will get you connected. But also, it's not just the outward beauty. It's the inner beauty of all that she is. Appreciate her intelligence, her gifts, her talents, her skills. Help her to utilize those to the best of her ability. Support her in, in ways that she is trying to establish herself in work or in career, right? Those things can be very helpful. Don't throw her under the bus in conversation in front of, the, in front of your friends. That demeans her, humiliates her. Right? Set an example by affirming her. In verse 29, it says that we should love. Husbands, you should love by providing for your wife. It says, uses the words nourish and cherish. Right? Nourish is like food, taking care of making sure something's healthy. And cherishing is caring for. And husbands, you might think, yeah, that's what I got to do. Provide money, provide, you know, safety. Um, this is like my wedding vows, you know, doing all that. What about your emotional intimacy? Are you cherishing, not just giving food, or not just uh, aiding with financial support for the, for the family. Are you listening well? I don't. I'm getting better, I think. She nodded. That's a good sign. Um, I didn't early on in our marriage. I, I, um, I tend to listen to problems to find the solution and provide the fix. Okay? So I'll fix it. I see myself as one who helps and solves problems and fixes things and, and we move forward. And that's true in lots of different ways. And if that's true of me, how does that mean that I might typically view my spouse? The one who needs fixing? Because I'm the fixer? Ooh. Yeah, that's not a healthy dynamic. Let me just tell you. My, my fault, right? Early on in my marriage, when something had gone wrong, I don't even remember what it was, Michelle said to me, I don't need you to fix me. I just want you to listen 
and feel how, I, how I'm feeling and understand me. By fixing, I was missing the person and only treating a solution. By listening to feel, I was cherishing her and understanding her. See the difference in that? Right? Those are the vows. To love and to cherish, to honor, to be faithful in sickness and health, richer or poorer, better or worse. Right? Till death parts us. But husbands, you also have to love by leading spiritually. In verse 26, you can put that on the screen. It says that washing with the word, right? The word is referring to scripture, to, to God's word, right? And so that means there's a spiritual component to leadership. Husbands, you need to be involved in that. You need to be praying for your spouse, for your family, and for others as well. Praying with your children, reading the Bible together, talking about it. Talking about spiritual things in life and what does this mean? Read to your kids, teach them to pray. Spiritual life and commitment to the church is either important or it isn't. It's one or the other. It's not like marginal. That's not the way Jesus kind of deals with it. It's like, are you in? Are you committed? Are you following me? Your family will learn from you. So you have an important role in leading spiritually. Let me move on to the third and final point here, and that is that we need to be ordering our marriages by glorifying Christ. Verse 21, put that on the screen if you would, says, right, we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then at the end of the passage in verse 32, Paul says, the mystery is profound, and I'm saying what I'm talking to you about, though you think it's about marriage, and it is about marriage, but it's something greater than that. It refers to Christ in the church. That's what Paul is saying. You might get drawn in to details of words like submit. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the head of the church or that, that a husband is a head of a family? But I want you to see that what Paul is doing here is he's actually aiming for your affections He's going after your heart to draw you to Jesus. Notice how much he talks about Christ in what we read in Ephesians. Ten of the 13 verses talk about Jesus, talk about Christ, talk about the church and what he does. Ten of the 13. It is not a long list of do's and don'ts. The whole point is is to glorify Christ and live according to his example and that your, merit, that your marriage will mirror the relationship of Christ to his people who he loves and died to save. So wives, as we hear the language and remember, think about submitting. Remember that Jesus submitted to his Father and it was a good thing in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed and he said, yet not my will but your will be done? Jesus submits it's not a bad thing. He's equal in substance and power and glory to the Father, but he was willing to submit, showing love. Husbands, remember how Jesus sacrifices. He didn't opt for what is convenient. He took the hard way, the costly way to demonstrate love. And you may think, well, what if my spouse doesn't 
love me? What if my spouse doesn't follow Jesus? If both spouses do not love and follow Jesus, then your marriage may well be grounded in good creation order. You may have a good understanding of the way that works, and that will generally be healthy and good, but you will not do it in such a way that's glorifying to God. Understanding the love and the forgiveness and the power that the Spirit of God has to work in marriage. And you'll miss out on something of the depths of the love and beauty that is meant to be. So order your marriage around Christ. Become a follower of his. Learn from him. Enjoy the beauty and the depth of marriage in that way. And if one of the spouses is not a follower of Jesus, then it's difficult Because Paul's writing to Christians saying, if this is how you both are, this is how it will work to be beautiful and glorious. And if one isn't on that same page, then it's difficult. Because self-sacrificing love that you know and give may not be reciprocated. Paul tells the Corinthians when he writes to them, they have some of those situations in the church and he addresses it and he says, okay, in that situation, those who are married to somebody who is not a follower of Jesus should remain married in order to show them the love of Jesus, to promote peace and to pray that they would come to know Jesus. And if the one who does not follow Jesus says, no, I'm done with this and wants out, then let them go in peace. Let them sue out a divorce in peace. There are many, many more questions related to husbands and wives and marriage that there's no way we're talking about today. Kind of talking about the high level of ordering your life according to God's way. But the main thing I want to impress upon you today is that to order your marriage in God's way means it is not primarily a list of do's and don'ts. It is primarily a love story about Christ and his church. This divine human relationship that Paul talks about, about Christ and his church, about this marriage that, that, is, that um, is like a thread going all the way through the Old Testament, tells us the story of love, this redemptive story of love, right? The divine human marriage begins with romance. It devolves into divorce where God's people run from him and seek other gods and other lovers. And where instead of leaving them, he pursues them and chases them down to win them back and is reunited to them so that at the end in Revelation, we see that heaven is this great wedding banquet of the Lamb. Where Jesus is there and his bride comes to him and says, I have won you, I've loved you, I've restored you, I've reconciled you, I have washed you, sanctified you, made you without blemish, pure, spotless, glorious. And here we are, united, in perfect harmony. That's the biblical frame that holds the picture of marriage. I read a story about a husband who lost his job. He spent every last dollar trying to divert his feelings and pain, not knowing what he was going to do. He went home expecting his wife to add her scorn, say, how could you, maybe to leave. Instead of burying him in self-defeat, she told him, of her love for him, she spent 30 minutes reminding him of the good things that he had done 
and how she loved him, about his sensitivity for the care for the children, about his humor, about the family memories that they shared together and other insights, how she thought highly of him. Her words were kind, and he didn't know what to do with it. He felt undeserving of it. And she could see him shrugging, and he said, I don't want you to love me so much. And she responded, God does. She gave her husband respect. Not because of the goodness that was in him, but because of the grace that was needed. Husbands and wives, that's what it's supposed to look like together. And that's where the power of the gospel changes and orders your marriage. It's the love story about Christ and his church. It's the biblical frame that holds the picture of marriage. How will you order yours? Let's pray with me. Jesus, I pray that you will help us in the crossroads of life in the battleground sometimes, between our own desires and wants and what we want to do and our selfishness, to love one another well. Will you help our marriages to tell stories of grace, to showcase Jesus, that they would be stories of redemption and reconciliation? Would you work in us, make us more like you? for your glory, for our good. Help us to believe when we doubt. Give us perseverance to endure when things are hard. Help us to see beauty in the midst of pain. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The ushers are going to come forward to collect the offering as